Amen. Can I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah chapter 6? I'm going to lose the jacket, I think. Still the vestiges of summer and the heat in the air, isn't there? Uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to read from verse number 15. And right down to verse 4 in chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter uh, 6, verse 15. And this is what God says. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Chapter 7, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them, be, let them shut and bar the, the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, and no houses. And, uh, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 4 again. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. I'm a reading at the end of verse number four. I remember uh, family trips uh, in the car as a boy, um, getting uh, the car packed up, uh, sitting in the car a good, I don't know, half an hour uh, before my parents got in, uh, so excited for the day ahead, and we'd only left the house a little while, and myself and my sisters were already asking the same question. Are we there yet? And my dad would say, sure, we only left the house 10 minutes ago. Uh, you know Portrush is, uh, is an hour away. And the journey there would take so much longer than the journey home, or so it would seem. And you would look out for road signs with, with Portrush on them, uh, and you would try to be the first person to say in the car, I see the sea, and the sea sees me. I don't know if you ever did that as a child. We say, are we there yet? All the time, though. Uh, patience is, is not a, a common uh, trait in our, in our world of instant noodles and Amazon Prime and on-demand everything, even in church. It's probably not a good sign if you're uh, a watch checker during the sermon and wondering, are we there yet? But it does happen. Bad news for the preacher, worse news for your heart. Are we there yet? But there is really good news that comes at the, uh, at the end part piece of chapter 6 that we read in verse number 15. The wall is finished. Did you see it there? The wall is finished. Praise be to God, the wall is finished. If Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, then of course, surely we must be there. 
Surely we must be there now. And all of the eager early expectation as his brother arrived in Susa with the news about the state of Jerusalem and and King Artaxerxes sympathetic to the cause and all of the plans that were envisaged and imagined on that first walk around the perimeter of the walls in chapter 2 have come to be and all of the sweat and effort and and the baking hot sun has paid off and all of the excitement as the community of believers worked together side by side and it began to take shape before their very eyes The city of God is now a proper functioning city. The construction's complete. The place is no longer a disgrace. But are we there yet? Let's consider, firstly this morning, divine reversal. The wall is completed and completed in record time. It only takes 52 days. That's a little more than seven weeks. Uh, It's ready. This is remarkably fast. The fact that it was finished in early autumn, we're told it's the 25th day of the month of Elul, that's the the early autumn, that also means counting back that they carried out the work in high summer, which makes it even more remarkable. Uh, Now, we may do construction things in the summer in our climate, but uh, you normally wouldn't in a hot climate like Israel. The remaining gaps have been plugged, they've been filled, the doors and the gates are now, are now hung, uh, the work is done and dusted, and this is great news. Great news that warrants celebration. And what happens? Well, what happens is that the, 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 the word spreads. Nehemiah says there in verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, chapter 6, well, there's lots about the enemy in chapter 6, isn't there? And they've, they've heard how the work now has been completed. They've heard how it's been completed super quick. And the response of such news is fear, we're told, and, and diminishing self-confidence. Their esteem takes a hit. Literally, they fell very much in their own eyes. Their self-confidence takes a hit. And can't you see the irony of this? Last week, we saw how super-confident enemies were scheming uh, to disrupt the work of God. They, they tried to spread rumors, didn't they, of sedition uh, to get the king of the empire to take action. They, they spread fear, which was laced through the 14 verses of, of the start, start of chapter 6. Fear of the king. Death threats. Repeated intimidation. Persistence. But look what's happened. God has turned the whole thing on its head. Their confidence has fallen sharply. For pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, says Proverbs. A rumor has spread, but it's not the one they wanted. The rumor that has spread to the nations is that the wall has been completed and fast. And it's a true rumor. And fear has come all right, but it's not the fear they wanted. It's fear that has fallen on the surrounding nations. It's fear that has fallen on their own heads. What scared them? What's done it? It's true, isn't it, uh, that in a human sense, that it often surprises you what a community of believers can, or what a community of people even can, can achieve when it works together under good leadership. But that's not what makes them afraid. No, no. No, no, they've perceived something else. They've realized something else. That, that little Judah that they once dismissed, that little Judah that they once mocked, That little Judah they once thought they could bully around the playground of the southwest corner of the empire, surrounded by their friends, of course. That against all expectations, well, they finished the wall and super quick at that. 
What they've realized is that little Judah has not become big Judah or super strong Judah, but they've got help. Isn't that right? They know that they could not manage such a task and timescale by themselves, but they've got help, it says at the end of verse 16, from our God. Our God, our help in ages past, we sang this morning. God's helped them, hasn't he? They've got help from above. And now they're not so confident to bully them anymore. Little Judah can't do such a thing herself in any normal circumstances. She needed help. uh, and, And God was her helper. Her great helper. Think about Rahab uh, from Jericho. We saw this a few Sunday nights ago. How she reports about the people of her city in Joshua 2. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og. Whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, mighty acts of God bring fear to those who are outside of God. Because it's fear of the supernatural. For you can't explain it with any natural causes. God did it. God has been at work. And that supernatural element scares them. All you can see and know is not all there is. That's scary. The cosmos is not all that is or was or ever will be, as Carl Sagan famously said on TV at the start of the 1980s. And that's scary. For if God has done this, if God can do this, well, what can he do next for them? And if he has intervened in history, then he can intervene in history again. If people can, of course, convince themselves that the gospel really is not true, then they will remain comfortable in their unbelief or indifference. But when they can't deny that God has been at work, for it's so obvious, well, that changes the landscape completely, doesn't it? That brings a sit-up-and-take-notice kind of fear Rumor and fear is what they asked for, and rumor and fear is what they got, but not in how they expect it. Those who live by the sword, Jesus says, die by the sword. Plenty of um, ironic, great reversals in in your Old Testament, aren't there? Think about about Haman, uh, who wanted to destroy the Jews in the book of Esther, uh, who, who ends up hanging on his own gallows by supernatural help. Think of Daniel being sent to the lion's den, knowing supernatural help and protection and seeing his own accusers throwing themselves into the lion's den. Think about Pharaoh, who who ordered the killing of all the Hebrew firstborn boys, but who ended up with his whole army where? In the same river. In the same, in in a different river. In the Red Sea, of course. In the Red Sea. In the same place. Drowned. Before God's actions for his people, the the, the nation's fear is not right. Their own esteem diminishes. Their their self-confidence is is ruined and the word spreads and the good news spreads. That brings glory to God. That brings honor to God's name among the nations. For God is the God of the great reversal. 
Rico Tice in Honest Evangelism that we studied last summer says that when you share your faith with someone, you'll be met with either hostility or hunger. And the issue is we don't know which one's coming. God's sovereign in salvation, not us. We could share our faith and be met with pushback, hostility, or a desire for more. Please tell me more. I don't want to hear that. Two different options. But we don't stop telling people we know who don't believe about what they're missing. The best answer to opposition to hostility is to, is to carry on, isn't it? To fulfill what God has told you to do, to fulfill God's purposes and, and let, let others see his power. That's what Nehemiah is teaching us this morning. Remember, you have an all-powerful God. Secondly, we notice divisive nobles. This uh, serious dent in confidence and awareness of God at work is sadly not the end of the enemies. There is still some fight left in them. Uh, God's people aren't there yet with them, uh, as it were, either. In verse 17 to 19, we learn about nobles and their dealings with Tobiah. Now, if you're familiar with the uh, Hollywood film Braveheart, it's a fairly loose uh, sort of historical account of William Wallace and his battle to retake Scotland from the control of the English in the 14th century. You'll perhaps remember that he was sold out by the scheming of the nobles. Their uh, unholy alliance behind closed doors sways it in terms of Wallace's ultimate demise. They could have fallen fully behind Wallace, but their lands and titles were so precious to them that they wanted to keep in with the English, and so they spoke to them on the sly, and they sealed Wallace's fate. Here we have a similar unholy alliance. Here that the nobles are conversing with Tobiah, and Tobiah, if you'll remember by now, and know is, is one of the three main enemies of the work at the wall. He's an Ammonite. He's from the kingdom of Ammon, east of the Jordan River. Historic enemies of God's people and frequently mentioned when the pagan nations are listed in the Old Testament, mentioned even by Rahab. But, but here the, the nobles of Judah are exchanging letters with him and letters are going in both directions, we're told. Nehemiah has had his issues with nobles before. Uh, the nobles of, uh, of the Tekoites would not stoop to get their hands dirty at the rebuilding of the wall in chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, the nobles were also the ones who were extracting interest unfairly and unlawfully from the poor in chapter 5. Here, well, it's an old sin problem that has resulted in present consequences, which often happens, by the way. Back in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10, we saw how intermarriage was a big issue. Intermarriage with the peoples around them. The resulting problem being that the peoples had not, I quote, separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and you guessed it, the Ammonites. Tobiah is connected by marriage, we're told, to the people of Judah. And not just once, but twice. He is, in, he is the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. That means that Shechaniah's daughter has married a pagan man. And secondly, Tobiah's son Jehoanan has married a Jewish woman, the daughter of someone called Meshulam. It's, it's double jeopardy, this, isn't it? They're connected twice. 
Is that the same Meshulam who helped on the wall in chapter 3? Maybe so. What's he doing giving his daughter away to the son of the enemy? And then we have the name of Tobiah's son, Jehohanan, which means the Lord has shown mercy. Clearly he thinks of himself as a believer. Messy this, isn't it? Tobiah, the Ammonite. But suffice to say, there are two connections in the family tree. And that has resulted in the consequence of some tied by family to the enemy. But even worse, we're told that many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Verse 18. How this came to be, we're not sure. We're also not sure of the nature of it. Is it a sort of economic thing? Is it a a political thing? Or is it both the promises that they've made? Either way, it's, it's very bad news. They're tied by oath to behave one way when it's very possible that God wants them to behave another way. That's very bad news. Think about the oath that Joshua and the children of Israel gave to the people of Gibeon in the conquest of Canaan. They came all up, didn't they, with their moldy bread and their sandals with holes in them and they pretended to be poor and they, and, and they were given an oath. We'll not, we'll not destroy you. And they were nothing but a snare and got in the way of God's work. But even worse than that, the nobles are in communication with the enemy. Present tense. The nobles are, are, are talking up Tobiah. They're saying, you know what, Nehemiah, he's not that bad. He, he's, he's just got a bad press. He's a nice guy. You should really try to get along. Don't be so separatist. Don't be so, such a hard liner. But Nehemiah, well, he will not compromise. He's shown him again and again in chapter 6 to be discerning, isn't he? He's got his biblical head screwed on. He, he understands. And they're going back to him and reporting what Nehemiah says. They're telling what Nehemiah said back. Tobiah continues to try and intimidate Nehemiah. He, he sent letters, it says at the end, to make me afraid of, of chapter 6. That's the closing note of the chapter. It's a very sinister closing note, isn't it? They haven't gone away, the enemies. He's apparently good, but he's still bad. Devious nobles are undermining Nehemiah. Divisive nobles. The enemy have been scared and curtailed in self-confidence, but they haven't disappeared from the scene. We're, We're not there yet with them. The pagan nations are still antagonistic to God's work. We, of course, you and I, have an enemy that has been disarmed at the cross but still carries on still some fight left in him still prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour tempting us accusing us bringing doubt and there is a not yet to the devil's ultimate defeat there is uh, the world set against god isn't there there is a not yet to the ultimate defeat of the pagan nations and there is the flesh within us which still rears its ugly head, and there's a not yet there to the end of sin for us. For on that day, we will be fully sanctified. Finally, dedicated appointments this morning. With the temptation to see the wall finished as the end, well, of course, you do need to remember that Nehemiah is a book of 13 chapters and not six or seven. In other words, there's more to do in Nehemiah yet. There's more to preach in Nehemiah yet. Yes, the wall's built. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 7 confirms it again. Now when the wall had been built, 
And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. So there are appointments to be made now. There's work to do. A bit like for the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, this week. Nehemiah appoints uh, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites. He appoints two men, even, in charge of the city. Uh, Hanani and Hananiah. Hanani is, the, is his brother. Uh, it's fitting that he's back again now in the, on the, in the narrative. Uh, he was the one, of course, who traveled to Susa uh, in Babylon in the first place to, to inform Nehemiah about the, the great need in Jerusalem. His concern for the city was, was obvious, and now he's again concerned, and he's in charge of the city. Hananiah, well, he's proved himself, we're told, in the past. His character record is strong. He stands out head and shoulders above most. A more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And so it's a key role for him in the charge of those who guard the city. Strong hints here that there's more to be done, isn't there? (laughs) After the wall's completed. There's more yet to be done. Clearly, there's security required in in this new uh, Jerusalem. Verse 4 tells us why. The the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, if you can imagine uh, the city with the walls completed, but only a sprinkling of existing houses there, with only a small population, the city, even with its wall, was still susceptible to attack. The gatekeepers are normally for guarding the temple gates. But here they're used to guard the gates of the city. Even the singers and Levites are given security duties because there's more work to do. For the enemy has not disappeared. One of the three unholy trinity of Nehemiah, well, they're here still. And they're in cahoots with the nobles, Tobiah. And still there's the need to place guards. Nehemiah appoints those in charge of security and he gives them instructions. He says the gates of the city are not to be opened at sunrise, but they're to be opened later when the sun is hot. And they're to be cautious with the gate and keep the door shut and barred. People are to guard at guard posts and at their own homes. We're not there yet. There's more to be done. Verse 4 also hints that there's more uh, building to do. There's need for houses in the city. There's clearly need for more people. Uh, that, that repopulation effort, well, there's, there's clearly a lot of work in that, a lot of parenting in that. Repopulation of the city. There's a planning application for 17 apartments at the old Lewis site, two doors down that way. I think that's great because the more people living near the church, to my mind, the better. A mission field. For we need more people to believe and join us and repopulate. Perhaps you came to faith as a young, excited person and uh, you thought that that was, that was you done now. The work's over. In, in, in a sense, yes. Of course, importantly, yes, the cross work is complete. It's finished, says Jesus. No more is needed in terms of sacrifice for sin. But of course, there's still work uh, for God to do in you yet. There's not one of us that couldn't wear a t-shirt that says work in progress as a Christian. For the Holy Spirit is working. There's none of us yet um, in, in terms, none of us there yet in terms of God's work in us. Perhaps you've served the church for years and years and you think, well, that must be me done. But thinking that we've done our bit is, is not biblical thinking. Costi Hen says there's no retirement in Christian ministry, only reassignment. Of course, the Queen was working until two days before she passed away this week. Isn't that right? 
There are more people yet to witness to. There are more people yet to move that will move into your street that you can get to know and show them what they're missing outside of Christ. There are more people to encourage and share uh, to, to, the, the wisdom, to humbly share the wisdom that God has given you over the years as a believer or just as a person walking the earth. Like a small boy seeing the road sign for Port Rush and thinking we must be there without realizing that the number 35 beside it was very significant. We're not there yet. Patience is still needed. It was just a signpost in the way. Nehemiah's time in history is not the end. There's more to come. Perhaps some people thought that when the walls were rebuilt, the Messiah would would immediately arrive, the virgin would conceive. But no, we have Old Testament chapters and indeed books to come after before one day the serpent crusher would come, the king of Judah, the saviour who is Christ the Lord, with powerful work of God intervening in human history when he arrived supernaturally in Mary and died on a cross to save us and rose again supernaturally by the power of God, saving you from your sins and uniting with King Jesus, if you know him. We have this week come to an end of an era, haven't we? But our time in history is is not the end. There's more to come. It, It may be a short time as some ardently believe, but it may be longer. But at the end, when it's all done and dusted, it'll be a time when we really will be there. And that day promises to be, well, a day of great reversals. Listen to Isaiah 35. First, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Is that you this morning? An anxious heart. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. What a reversal. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then, the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. You see, through Christ, the wilderness blossoms, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap, the natural world is turned up upside down with God's supernatural intervention when we're there. That's a time when fear falls on the nations, when those who reject God's Son will fall under his wrath, and eternally so, when his power is on display as the graves are opened, and and there's an appointment with everyone with their maker, and we all stand before the judgment seat as Liz Trust read out on Friday night in St. Paul's Cathedral. When we stand, when the hand of judgment will come crashing down. Now, we don't want that for them. We want them to turn and believe. But for those who refuse, it's this white hot anger. It's a time when death will all be over. The nation is sad, isn't, aren't we? Because the queen has died. She was called by many as the grandmother of the nation. And we might not have maybe vocalized this, but the time she spent on the throne was so long and she lived through it all, all the wars, the changing times, the changing ways of communication and transport and all the the national disasters and crises and all the sporting achievements. Some say that they have this unmet notion that she might just live forever. 
You know what that is? That's a sense of heaven, isn't it? That's an unmet notion that God has placed there, that God has given us this eternity in our hearts. Isn't that right? When we really will be there. That's a longing for a perfect world, if you ever heard one. There's a time when Jesus will make appointments to to serve him in the new kingdom that, that has come where the faithful and God-fearing will be rewarded with responsibilities like Hananiah was. There'll be one or two surprises, I'm sure. And the city of God, Zion, as it's often referred to in the Old Testament, will be a place of rejoicing and a place without the threat of enemies or violence. No need to guard it in the new Jerusalem. No need for security there. No need to, to... Listen to Isaiah 35 at the end. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a hope we have in Jesus. What a future we will enjoy. But we're not there yet. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we find ourselves in a place where we have so much, but there's a not yet to come. We recognize that one day faith will give way to sight. Father, we recognize that one day evil will be crushed, but it still lingers, sometimes obviously so in our world. We recognize, Father, that we're not the complete package. We're still battling with sin. But one day we'll be done and dusted. And its impact on us and on the new world will be no more. Bless us and give us encouragement for the journey. And help us to look to Jesus, who guides us all the way. Amen. Amen. Before we come to the